Very good. Thanks, Jason. My name's Tim. I'm an alcoholic and an addict and and an anon and all sorts of things. Uh, if it works and then stops working, I've done it. Um, so why are we talking about step four? For those of you who've missed the earlier steps, step one says that um, uh, I'm screwed the way I'm living. I'm screwed. There is no way out. I cannot change. I need a power greater than myself to change. Step two, there is a power greater than myself. Step three, I can, I can gain access to that power greater than myself, provided I take further steps, literally the further step. Step three is a, a decision, which means it's a pivot point where I, from being pointed in the direction of me, decide to point myself in the direction of God. Now that's meaningless unless it's immediately followed by action. If you're standing in hell and you turn 90 degrees round or 180 degrees round, uh, and you're now pointed in the direction of heaven, you're still in hell. Unless you start moving, you're going to stay in hell. So a decision has to be followed by action. So then it says, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, already, I'm already going to be rude and controversial, I'm afraid. It, in one of the um, big American cities, uh, it's very common for people to say, I wish you a long, slow recovery. They wish people a long, slow recovery. Uh, I don't wish anyone, I wish people a fast recovery. I don't want people to suffer any longer than is necessary. I don't want to suffer any longer than is necessary. So page 63, if you want to follow along on the laser display screen, it's on page 63. Next week, next, that means next. <laughs> not next week, not next month, not, not when I've cleaned the house, not when work is quieter. I love that one. When work has quietened down, work will never quieten down. Just, just be aware of that. Uh, when the children have grown up, well, next we <laughs> launched out on a course of vigorous action. Um, if you're going to act vigorously with step four, it's a, I find it's a really good idea to schedule the time to do it first thing in the morning before the phone starts ringing, before your boss calls, before the emails come in. Just get it done first thing in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, before the kids are up, where the only other person that's up is the cat. Uh, do it then. If you schedule it later on in the day, it won't get done. That is the experience of a billion people. <laughs> so learn from their experience. It won't get done. I'll do it when I've done literally everything else. Yeah, but you won't do literally everything else. And then you'll be too tired. And then you'll get morbid and weird. So don't do it first thing in the morning. Uh, if you have trouble getting up, go to bed. There's a very interesting solution to that problem. Um, next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning. 
uh, which many of us had never attempted. What we're after is beliefs, thinking patterns and behavior patterns. How do we get to them? Feelings. You have to start with the feelings and the feelings will tell you what your beliefs are, what your thinking is and what your behavior is. My feelings are downstream of my beliefs, my thinking and my behavior. They cannot be manipulated directly. Uh, people say, you know, they do things to change the way they feel. I'm, can you? I think you can mask the way you feel. I don't think you can change the way you feel directly unless you do some upstream change in belief, thinking and behavior. Um, sometimes people say you need to feel your feelings. Uh, let me just ask you, if ever you felt anxious, if you try to not feel anxious, does it work? No, doesn't work. So this injunction to feel your feet, now you're going to be feeling them anyway. You can admit them or deny them, but you can't not feel them. It's in the nature, like physical pain. It, if it's there, it's there. You can be aware of it uh, dimly or aware of it acutely, but it's there. Feelings are the way in. And I've got some very, very bad news. So if you're not sitting down, then I... I do suggest sitting down, maybe pausing for a moment. If you're holding a hot drink, put the hot drink down. If you're doing anything to get in the way of your feelings, you won't be able to do a step four because the feelings are the way in. So if there is another addiction, which you're acting out on, good luck, because it's going to block some or all of the feelings and the feelings are the way in. There are three inventories in step four, plus some clearing up odds and ends, but essentially there are three inventories. Resentment, fear, and sexual relationships. The way into the resentment inventory is when I'm resentful, which is a, a, a an umbrella term for all of my upset at the present and the past. Fear is an umbrella term but all of my upset about the future or what might be. So resentment and fear are the same in substance. Their time frame differs. So the two categories really merge into one. They're being upset about something, past, present or future, covers all upset. That's the way into the first two inventories. If you can't admit you're upset, you can't do the inventory. Um, the third inventory is the sex inventory, and the emotion that is the gateway to that is guilt and shame, which is when I'm upset very specifically about my behavior. That's how you identify chiefly what's gone wrong in those relationships. So it's, and this is very clever. Uh, it's unbelievably clever the way it's set out in the big book. Because the one thing you are aware of, if you are aware at all, when you get to step four is you are very, I was very, very unhappy. And whenever I'm doing step four, I'm addressing the unhappiness of which I'm aware. You don't need analytical skills to identify the fact that you are unhappy. I'm, 
if I know nothing else when I was drinking and before I was drinking, if I knew nothing but that, I did know that. Are you happy? No. There we go. Very clear. So the inventory meets you where you are. And I'll just give you by way of contrast. I don't want to be too rude about Al-Anon. I love Al-Anon. But um, uh, in, in the step four in Al-Anon, there are lots of different methods. And one of them is in a book called Paths to Recovery. And there's a bunch of step four uh, questions. And it asks a question like, this is one of the step four questions. How am I humble? Like, I've been doing this for 30 years. I don't know how I'd answer that. And I don't know what an answer to that would look like. Does that mean in what, uh, when it says how, is that the method by which I'm humble or examples of humility? I don't even understand the question. Um, whereas in AA, we say, a little Bobby is doing his first step four. Has anyone ever pissed you off, Bobby? You're any, angry about anyone? Did anyone do a bad thing? Has anyone ever done a bad? Is there anyone you don't like? <laughs> a five-year-old could do it. It doesn't require, and then it gradually leads you through. Um, and now there isn't time. You you could do you could do a month of Sundays on step four. So I'm just going to be able to do headlines and highlights here. But the resentment inventory basically boils down to this. Uh, the starting point of someone who is full of self, this is me when I'm full of self, is you're very bad people and I hurt and it's your fault because you're very bad. And you did a bad thing. So I'm upset. I'm. Here are the modern words we use to say that we're upset. I'm offended. I find that offensive. I think that is offensive. Or here's another one. I'm going through a lot of grief at the moment. Oh, are you? I heard something now. There is, I don't want to belittle grief, grief. That is a thing. But I heard someone say a while ago that uh, they were going through grief. And I, I thought, ooh, I, I said, I, I'm so sorry. Have you lost someone close to you? She said, no, my car was stolen. And you're pissed off that someone stole your car. Let's call it what it is. There are so many ways of legitimizing basically an immature reaction to an ordinary event of the world, turning myself into the victim and other people into the persecutors. So now we know who's good and now we know who's bad. Who's good? Me, the long-suffering person with, the, with my little, my brave, bitter little smile <laughs> in the world that treats me so badly. And all the wrong is out there. It ain't in here. It's out there. That's the starting point of the resentment inventory. So it meets you where you are. So you say to Bobby, right, who, who pissed you off? And Bobby writes down 200 names. Um, uh, I, I had a, a, a friend once whose uh, 
she's Sikh, she comes from a very large family, everyone has a thousand children. And I think her first column in the resentment imagery that who, who pissed her off, I think it had 670 names and 650 were relatives. I like, I couldn't remember the names of that many people, but she was impressive. Um, so the staff, that's the starting point. And it goes in very, very gently. So you, you say, right, okay, Bobby, you've got your list of names. We're gonna examine a few of those because really resentment, is, it's not, you think you've got 600 resentments or 10,000, actually you've got about 15, but they wear different hats and you're not very bright. So you think that you've got different resentments, but it's the same resentment wearing a different hat, but now it has a French accent and you think it's a different, but it's not, it's exactly the same. <laughs> but now it's speaking like this. <laughs> you think it's a new person, but it's not. It's the same old person putting an accent on. Um, it, it's the same resentment over and over. So pick a few, just pick a handful. If you get to the end of that, you feel there's more, we'll look at half a dozen more. If we find genuinely new material, great. If not, we'll just stop at that. And then you say to Bobby, what did the bad man do? And you just write down what, what they did very concretely. Uh, my, my favorite one uh, is a friend of mine uh, from Plymouth um, where her first draft of a resentment was this. I always tell this story, but it's I think it's so illustrative. Uh, so what did this person do? You know, it was Sally. What did Sally do? Sally put me down. I thought, well, what do you mean put you down? Or euthanized you? I did, uh, what do you mean? We we uh, we talked about it and got to the facts. It changed from Sally puts me down to my boss in work meetings presents points of view which differ from my own. <laughs> That's a very different situation. The fact of that, you're in a work meeting, you're supposed to have different points of view. Um, so you strip away the interpretation and you get to the fact. And the magic then starts to happen after this. Uh, to be upset about anything, I must have an idea of how I think things should be. And the upset is coming from my comparison between what I see going on out there or what I think is going on out there and on the other hand, how I think things should be. If you have no idea how things should be, you have no point of comparison, you don't know to be upset. But that comparison is happening unconsciously most of the time. The point of comparison, the, the blueprint for the universe is also usually unconscious. You don't know it's there. is this person has done that meeting or presented a different point of view uh, and now I'm upset. But beneath that, a little computer program has been running 
which says, what has Sally just said? Let's compare what Sally's just said to what we think Sally should say. Oh my God, she said something different from what I think she should say. <gasps> now we're upset. And what Sally should say is, let's say this is Bobby doing the inventory. Bobby, that's a very good idea. Let's do what you think we should do. Well, actually, in fact, what you should be the manager. No, you should be the director. And we're going to give you the company, but it should belong to you because you're far more intelligent than anyone else. You're even, I know you're only 24 and you've only been in this business for six months, but you clearly know more about this business than the rest of us who've been doing it for 30 years. So we're going to bow down to you. You see, that's the plan. And all you have to do is say, what do you want Sally to do? And you, it's like lancing a cyst and all the pus comes out. There's a plan there. And it's amazing when people find the button to press to release that material, it's all that the plan is beautifully thought through. Um, why do I want to do well at work so I can have money? Why? So if problems happen in my life, I can throw money at them and I don't need to rely on God. Uh, security, I need to pay my bills, but I need to have so much money that I don't even need to be frightened about not paying my bills. I don't want just enough money to pay my bills. I want a blanket, a safety blanket and another safety blanket and another safety blanket. My idea of security is I live in, in a sealed room at the top of a tower in a castle and the castle is surrounded by a huge wall with men posted all around the, the fortifications and there is a moat full of alligators and there is an army outside the walls uh, in the field so that if anyone comes to attack the castle I'm so going to be okay. There is no way I can ever be hurt by anything. Uh, a friend of mine called Sheldon W. from Los Angeles says, I want just enough money that I don't have to rely on God. And it turns out that no amount of money is ever enough. I know people that earn 500,000, 700,000 pounds a year, and they are no less financially insecure because now they've built a life that costs that much money. Uh, except now they're working 80 hours a week. And they know they need 10 million to retire and stay in the lifestyle to which they've become accustomed. So there's a plan there. There is a plan for what would people think of me if I'm just, just a, you know what, my, uh, the greatest insult that was ever launched in my direction for years was this one. You're only human. I was so affronted by that. The idea that I'm just, it's fine for other people to be ordinary, but it's not okay for me to be ordinary. I need to be special. Uh, and Clancy puts it very well that uh, when people tell you you're okay, you feel terrible. When people tell you you're special, you feel okay. 
But however special you start out, you're not going to stay that special to any employer, to any uh, partner. You can't keep that type of intensity up. And then the person stops delivering the specialness and now they become the enemy. They're withholding from you the thing which they've stolen from you and they need to give it back through constant praise. I heard someone say, all I want is for everyone to love, adore, respect, praise, validate, and talk well about me in the superlative degree of comparison to everyone else at all times. Is that too much to ask? Anything that falls short of that. Someone says that was very good. And the little voice says, not excellent then. Oh, okay. When someone says that was one of the best pieces of work I've ever seen. Not the best then. Oh, okay. Nothing is ever good enough because whatever you feed the monster, it's now bigger and it has a bigger appetite. So feeding the monster, people think they're going to get rid of the monster by feeding it. <laughs> no. So the point of all that is the resentment inventory. What it reveals is that I have a gargantuan set of demands which arise out of a blueprint for what my life should look like and what my set of roles and characters and personalities should look like within that life. In, in, in romance, in finance, in AA, uh, it, whatever domain I'm in, the ego will build a blueprint for my role, how other people should see me, uh, for what my circumstances should look like, my financial position, the meeting of my so-called needs. And the resentment comes from the fact that the world will not comply with my wishes. That's all. That's what the first three columns show me, is that my unhappiness comes from me, not from them. If I didn't have the set of demands, I couldn't be upset when people behave as they behave. Every single demand is either unreal, unreasonable or unrealistic. So I want to be praised constantly is uh, uh, unreasonable. I want everyone in my home group to like. In a sense, that's reasonable to want people to like you. Is it realistic? It's not realistic. How do you know that a demand is not realistic or reasonable? Because it's not being met. If it was realistic and reasonable, it would all already be met. So that's why no demand is ever realistic or reasonable. It's a, it's a, what they call an axiom, I think. Now, this sounds horrid. It's a, it's one of those, the ego's got so many um, defenses. Um, one of them is to say, well, this is just victim blaming. The re trying to take responsibility yourself aren't you just exonerating other people no when i realize that i'm caught if if you're the cause of my unhappiness i'm going to remain unhappy forever because that there are eight billion people and if you've ever tried to correct one person you'll realize how difficult it is then you realize you have eight billion to correct you've got a pretty big task there before you can be happy 
if the only person you have to correct is yourself, there is some, some hope of improvement at any rate. So you better hope that the problem lies with you. Now, it's not zero sum. Does it mean that other people don't suck sometimes? Of course not. On page 66, the world and its people were often quite wrong. So the book concedes this very clearly that other people are wrong, 67, other people are spiritually sick too. But we're not interested in that. We're interested in why I'm interested in why I'm hurt. And uh, my sponsor, sponsor Bill, says the reason you're unhappy is because you didn't get your own way. The only way not to be unhappy is not to have a way. An unresolved unhappiness always spurts out, in my experience, in the activation of an addiction. So if I want the addictions not to be reactivated, the I've got to find a place of peace and calm and cheerfulness. And um, what forgiveness means, uh, I mean, there is some unpicking. So very often it is not the, the fact which is causing the problem. It is my interpretation of the fact. So there is some unpicking there. Um, but essentially it boils down to this. If I don't need people to behave in order for me to be okay, then I can let go of the resentment against them. The resentment is a form of a mental attack. So I recognize that the demands don't need to be met for me to be okay. Uh, I look at their bad behavior if there is bad behavior. And so what is motivating that? Well, they've got the same set of blueprints as me. The, the, there are variations. There are variations between people. But it's like a color palette. that the, the fundamental colors available are the same for everyone. They get mixed differently. So I recognize that other people, when they behave badly, are driven by self as opposed to being led by God. And I seek to identify with them and mentally extend love towards them rather than mentally extending attack. Um, and once that starts to be cleared out of the way, I can look at uh, the so-called page 67 questions where I simply look at my behavior, my thinking, my behavior, and it starts out with this question about mistakes. And this always needs an awful lot of help from a sponsor or step buddies or other people. What I do under mistakes is I unpick the wrong thinking and replace it with right thinking so that I know what the right attitude. Let's take the example of um, Sally is always putting me down. That gets unpicked and replaced with in work meetings, I'm there to present ideas. In those meetings, everyone else is there to present an idea. Uh, the purpose of the meetings is to present different ideas and decide as a group which we think is best. When other people's views differ than mine, it doesn't mean that they hate me or dislike me or disrespect me. It simply means their idea is different than mine. Uh, sometimes I'm right, sometimes I, I'm wrong, and that's okay. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, and that's okay. I am not being attacked. I am perfectly safe. I'm there to do a job, which is to speak when asked, take part in the discussion, 
decide with everyone else what to do and get on with it. And if I adopt that attitude, then when Sally gives an idea, my job is to listen to the idea and maybe take it on board. If she's got a lot more experience, take it on board. And so there's a little journey that goes from the, you know, that, what's that line from 1960s film? Um, I think it's one of the carry-on films, the, 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 the carry-on Cleopatra, where Romans stabbing each other the whole time. Uh, one of them says, infamy, infamy. They've all got it infamy. Moving from infamy to a sane, sound ideal for how a mature, balanced, calm, poised adult would handle this ordinary situation. And under the mistakes question, we go on that little journey from the hysterical victim to the ordinary grown-up. And then we've got some other questions. Where was I selfish? Selfishness is where I'm unreasonably prioritizing myself and my goals over the common good or the interests of others, or even my own future good. If, I'm, if, I, if I eat uh, a huge tub of ice cream and it's going to make me ill tomorrow, um, then I'm being selfish. The person who's suffering is me in a larger sense. I'm prioritizing one tiny aspect of me, which is my immediate comfort over the bigger question of my well-being. Selfishness, self-seeking. What am I after? What's the game plan? Fear is the other side of that. What am I? What is the game plan? An antidote to what am I frightened is going to happen? Um, the game plan is almost always to do with one of seven things. Sex, money, power, prestige, comfort, thrills, and appearance. And you can accommodate almost, well, pretty much everything under that. Fear is the specific thing I'm frightened of in one of those seven areas. Uh, dishonesty uh, is a very uh, simple question. Where did I lie? Where did I distort the truth? Where did I conceal the truth? And where did I scheme? Uh, and just a, a footnote on that. Uh, sometimes the dishonesty question goes a bit wrong, where um, uh, someone will put something like, you know, it's the resentment against the wife, and they'll put dishonesty. I never told her how much I hated her. And then, no, 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 no. The point about the dishonesty is when you lie, when you should have told the truth. Um, uh, reasonable discretion is not, is not. I should have told my boss where to stick it. Uh, no, <laughs> that's not what we're after. We're after um, real deceit here, unreasonable deceit, not, not the ordinary social lubrication of tact consideration and uh, a judicious deployment of information. Uh, but where was I to blame? Uh, what did I do? There's a, a line in the book. Um, at some decision, at some point, we made a decision based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. I think it's around 62. And later on with fear, where do we set the ball rolling? Um, in my job, when I started my current occupation, I'm very careful not to say career. 
Myers-Dodd. It's an occupation. It's a way I occupy myself during the day. Um, heaven forbid it should become a career. Uh, but when I started doing it, uh, I'd previously had a different occupation, which drove me nuts. I, 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 I drove myself nuts in it. Um, it was, I worked in very unhealthy settings where there were very unreasonable and unhealthy demands of the individuals working, and it was just not something I was suited to. I was so glad to get out of there. I didn't care. As long as I had enough to pay the bills, I didn't care. And then over the years, an image built up of who I should be in this new occupation. So that if I don't get enough work, if there isn't enough of a pipeline, if I'm not earning enough money, even though I've got more than enough, the image of myself in this career is, tar is tarnished, is hurt, is threatened. Almost everything is ultimately about self-image, my experience. Where was I to blame? So I, I recently had some, some very low level worries, but there have been some worries there about the direction my so-called industry is going and where that leaves the me in the type of work I do. Uh, where was I to blame? Well, I'm, I'm the one that has a notion of what my role should be. If I were just to say I'm here to serve, which means to do tasks on a daily basis, whatever comes down the tubes, if you ask me to do something, I'll do it. There's no problem. I always, always set the ball rolling. And with one of the, the most startling examples for me over the last few years of a particular friendship, which uh, went pear-shaped, I think is the term. Uh, the little journey I went on was from feeling very victimized by the other person to I'm really bad at choosing friends. Uh, I made the mistake of thinking a friendship was possible in a particular situation when it wasn't. And I was I fooled myself because the destination was printed clearly on the ticket. I am always there. Uh, it's just like having the car unlocked. Yeah, the jerk shouldn't have stolen the car, but who left the who left who left the keys in the door? Who left the car unlocked? And I'm whenever I'm hurt, I've left the car unlocked. Uh, what else do we have? The seventh question on page sixty-seven is about faults. That's my character defects, which beautifully enough gives me uh, a list of character defects for my step seven. And then the eighth question, wrongs, what are my wrongs? This is where I've wronged other people. I've harmed other people. Gives me the basis for my step eight, as if by magic. Um, a very important point, and I, I've, only, I've only realized this over the last eight or nine years. Um, The traditional approach with step four is to only ask those page 67 questions, if they're being asked at all, on relationships, on people where I've got a resentment. What I've learned to do is to ask those questions, mistakes, selfishness, self-seeking, fear, uh, dishonesty, blame, faults and wrongs. 
in every area of my life. So diet, exercise, looking after myself physically, sleep, um, how I handle money, my relationship to earning, my relationship to spending, my interests, my long-term financial provision. Do I look after my home, uh, my relationship to animals, to nature, to the community, to society? Because very often the, 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 the devil lies not in the resentments themselves, but in all those other areas. Sometimes people are, just don't understand uh, why they're so unhappy because they're working really hard at the program. Then you discover that there's, there's, there's no physical self-care. They don't do any exercise. They're eating crap. They're staying up watching screens till one in the morning, not getting enough sleep. Um, constantly wiring themselves with red bulls and then they wonder why the spiritual side of the program seems to be a little elusive well there are some really basic if you and with those things in other areas like if you took a really healthy person uh and let's say someone in their 40s or 50s and you eliminated their pension scheme at the back of their mind it would scratch the whole time what am i going to do when i'm 70 what am i going to do when i'm 80 just one of those things if you took a healthy person and you fed them seven red bulls a day you'd make them crazy so i've got to be looking at everything in those page 67 questions and most people have in my experience it's true for me 40 or 50 things going on in their lives, each one of which will be enough to turn the whole system upside down. Not to mention all the unmade amends, not to mention all the resentment. This bad diet alone will do it. No exercise alone will do it. No contact with nature will do it. Staying up too late will do it. Any one of those things will make ordinary functioning impossible. And as I say, most people have dozens of things like that. Um, a lot of people I've known in recovery don't go to the dentist because who has time? And their gums bleed every time they, do their, their br they brush their teeth. And there's this anxiety every single time they do that. It's a very common thing people don't talk about a bit. It's amazing how often that comes up. I haven't been to the dentist in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Uh, you add those up and you're in hell. I, unfortunately, yeah, relying on God is really great, but I do need to do my part too. Uh, Sister Ignatia um, used to give people a St. Christopher's medallion. And St. Christopher, I understand, is the patron saint of, uh, of many things. One of the things was traveling. And she said, so when you're driving, take your medallion uh, of St. Christopher with you. Uh, but don't drive over 50 miles an hour because above 50 miles an hour, he gets out. Uh, <laughs> you know, trust God but tie your camel to a tree. God will do for me what I won't do for myself. God will do for me what I can't do for myself, but won't do for me what I can do for myself.
And these page 67 questions can be usefully employed to uncover all the things I should be doing for myself, which God cannot do for me. And then you can set to work. Um, second inventory is the fear inventory. Uh, and that's very straightforward. Uh, just brainstorm the fears. You've already got a bunch of fears from the page 67 questions. You brainstorm the fears and then look at what's behind them. Um, and you play the and then what game. So I'll give an example. Um, uh, I'm frightened that I won't get enough work. And then what? I won't have enough money. And then what? I won't be able to go on fancy trips. People will think I'm a failure. I'll be a fraud in AA. I'll be giving it large about the program, but I'll be someone who everyone knows is a failure in their real life. I won't be useful in AA. Who will I be if I'm not useful in AA? There you go. It's like dominoes. One domino falls, hits the next domino. And you get down to the underlying fears. And they're almost always the same. Uh, fear of being alone, fear of being separated, uh, fear of emotional pain, fear of physical pain, fear of death, fear of pointlessness, fear of emptiness, uh, fear that I will make the wrong choices in life and it will be my fault for making the wrong choices. Um, I mean, lots of these overlap. People express them differently. It really doesn't matter because the whole point is fear is uh, a sign that I've set myself up in opposition to God. I've identified myself with my physical body and my experience on this material plane so that if something goes wrong in this material plane, I am fundamentally compromised. And when I die, there'll be nothing left. Um, if you think about the image of the actors in the play, when the play is over, the actors are still alive. And the experience of playing the characters in the play has enriched the lives of the actors, even if the characters have been murdered horribly on stage or otherwise come to a sticky end or even just have disappeared because the play is over. Fear, if you imagine um, actors in um, a play where all sorts of terrible things happen, um, Titus Andronicus. If the actors think they're the characters in the play, they're gonna be frightened. Whereas if the actors are good actors and simply play their parts, there's nothing to be frightened of. So what is happening inside the play cannot affect the actors. There is a sign I've forgotten I'm the actor playing the role. Uh, the only legitimate fear in a sense is the fear that I've separated myself from God, but that can be remedied by saying, that you see what the ego says is imagine a head in Silmarillion, there is actually a very interesting description of that, uh, of this beautiful music. 
Imagine being part of that. And then a little voice in your head says, where's my solo? I want a solo. I want to sing the solo. And God says, no, you can't sing the solo because there is no solo. I would have to dim other people's voices for you to sing the solo. And I'm not going to do that because why? And so you said, well, F you then. I'm going to go and sing a solo on my own, completely separate. So you come down into the material world trying to sing your little solo. <laughs> so everyone can look at you and say, aren't you good? Aren't you clever? Don't you do that well? Oh, you are special. Oh, I feel like I've known you forever. You're so special. Oh, I, 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 can we be together forever? Can we be special friends? Uh, so I've got to say no to that hell. You see, you can't say yes to God unless you've said no to that. You're not, unless you're done drinking, it's no good trying to, do, trying to be sober. It, unless you're done with self-seeking and vanity and appearances and sex and romance, and unless you're a money, unless you're done with those, then pasting the program on top of all of that is like when 14 year old boys don't uh, shower, but they just spray links all over each other and they pile onto the top deck of the bus and stink it out. That's what doing the program without a surrender is that the old, the old system has to be surrendered first to create a space for the new system or the new system and the old system will argue with each other inside you. So if you meet someone in AA who is tense, it's because the old system is still there. People who just live by the old system haven't tried to take on board the new system. They're doing way better than the people that try and adopt the new system without getting rid of the old system. That's why there's this very strange phenomenon sometimes of people in AA that ha haven't done the program at all. They just go to meetings and chat away. They haven't even tried and they're happy because they're congruent. Their ideas match what they're doing. They're not trying to pretend or do something that they haven't signed up to. They're going to be more comfortable than the people who are trying to do the program but haven't given up the old belief system yet. So there's a funny paradox. The people who are, are, are actually further ahead spiritually will look as though they're doing worse until the real surrender happens. And Harry Tebout talks about this, about the difference between compliance, which is a tense state of affairs, like an elastic band which is pulled. And at some point, the elastic band will snap in one direction or the other. Whereas in surrender, you haven't got two opposing forces pulling you in different directions. Uh, you've got just one force which is gently uh rolling you down the stream merrily when there's no you're not resisting anything you're just going with it and you meet people sometimes three days sober who are going with it who haven't got any fight left in them and they're doing very well they're the winners stick with the winners stick with them find some newcomers who don't give a shit because at least they're sober they're very good to spend time with.
That's the fear inventory. The sex inventory. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to let you into a little secret. At big book meetings, where when they read the big book and they discuss it, when it gets to the sex inventory, sometimes I don't go to that meeting because when people are invited to share on the sex inventory, what they hear is, please do your step five with us right now about all the things you've got up to. And it's, oh, it's bad enough having one's own sexual history without having everyone else's paraded before the room. So um, uh, um, the, the S fellowships are very good about this, uh, about you, you can talk specifically about what is going on without being explicit. So without conjuring or creating images in people's minds, people do not need a mental image of what you've been doing. Just say acting out, that's enough, <laughs> right? Um, no visuals. Anyway, hobby horse, let's forget that. But the, the sex inventory is very interesting. Uh, it is solely, solely about behavior. In other words, how I will have come across to other people in my behavior, how I actually affected them. And it's very, very difficult. People find this almost impossible to separate the inside from the outside. And they'll write, it's very common, almost everyone does it. I was selfish. Yeah, but what did you do? Well, I don't know, I just was selfish. Well, you need to think about a little more that. They're very, very specific questions. Um, once you've done these three inventories, uh, you're basically done. Although there's an important point um, that the, the steps are far broader than they appear to be. What I mean by that is if you look at the step on the scroll on the wall in your AA meeting, the step looks very simple and straightforward. So continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted in step 10. You read the instructions for step 10 on pages 84 and 85, and the question is much bigger than just that. Same with step four, same with all of them. There is a lot more in the step when you look at the content in the same way that uh, if you want to make a black forest gatto, the words black forest and gatto will not get you very far unless you know how to make a sponge and shanti cream and all of the other things and you have the right sorts of cherries you will not have a black forest gatto i don't know what you if you've never had one imagine what would you what would you make and it's like that with the steps you need to read the full recipe in the book to know what the step really means um and in step four, there's some very interesting stuff <clears throat> about uh, solving problems. Uh, whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow towards it. We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing. And then it says a very interesting thing. In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. Now, it hasn't told us anywhere else how to handle problems. But here it's implying, well, this is how you handle a problem. But they do it backwards. They say, this is how you handle problems in the area of sex. And this is 
therefore how you handle any problem. So how do you handle a problem? It says here, in meditation, that means you have to be meditating. In meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. Um, and it says above that a couple of other things. We subjected each relation to this test with its selfishness. We asked God to mould our ideals and help us to live up to them. And later on, it says God alone can judge our, take the word sex out of it, our situation. Counsel with persons is often desirable, but we let God be the final judge. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. That narrows the field of the people to call. Uh, and then, uh, middle of 70, we earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity and for the strength to do the right thing. It says if sex is very troublesome, but let's expand it. If anything is very troublesome, if food is very troublesome, if your sponsees are very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartache. That this line, this takes us out of ourselves. The answer to any problem is not solving the problem of self within self, it's getting out of self. You're not, well, I'm, I'm not there to fix self. I'm there to escape from it. So I'm not peeling the layers of the onion. I'm realizing there's no onion to peel in the first place. It's a bloated nothingness. And it's got in those, that page and a half, a complete, a complete um, presentation of how to solve any problem. And everything else is detailed. Um, the traditions are very good with problem solving, of how to rub along well with other people. And the concepts are very good on how to solve delegation of responsibility and authority in organizations to get work done. So there are, there's, there's lots of specific principles between um, 110 and 135 in the big book. There are several dozen principles of how to have a successful intimate relationship. Um, which are horrifying that they're they're horrifying <laughs> um don't argue just don't argue if you get heated withdraw from the situation i mean that will save you 10 years of therapy i'm not allowed to criticize or argue there we go that's the idea so there's lots of stuff later on but this is the christmas tree that passage from 69 to 70 is the christmas tree Everything else is the decorations on the Christmas tree. So we get a lot out of this, a lot out of step four, beyond uh, uh, the actual inventories. Top of 67, there is a complete answer to all resentment. In other words, all trouble, emotional trouble at the present and the past. 68, there's a complete answer to all fear, which is to place the matter in God's hands and say, what would you have me be? What would you have me do? 6970, we've got a complete answer to relationships and solving problems in general.
So if ever you have a problem, the program proper starts on page 63. That's where we convert from consideration to action. By the time you get to 70, seven pages in, we've now given you an answer to every problem you have ever had and will ever have, at least in broad outline. So never think you don't have an answer to a problem. You have. It's in there. Now, how to apply it might require a bit of consideration, a bit of help. But the solution is not 20 years away. It's seven pages away. It's there. It's right in front of you. And it's my job to use it. So uh, I think it's time now for, for questions, if there are any. Um, so, Jason, should we just go straight into those? Maybe if people would like to raise their hands or put any questions they have in the chat. Uh, Paolo. Uh, hello, Tim, thanks. Thanks for your share. Um, I'm very grateful, it was very helpful. Uh, I have a question about the fourth step. How long uh, it should take or how long did it take you, take you to complete uh, the fourth step? Thanks. Uh, that's a good question. Um, my first fourth step was terrible. It did the job, but it was terrible. Um, uh, it took, I think, uh, four months and two hours. It took two hours spread over four months. <laughs> I could have finished it in two. From the amount that I wrote, I could have finished it in two hours, but it took four months to, uh, to, 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 find, <laughs> to find. As if the two hours were lost. They weren't lost. I didn't need to find the two hours. Or people say, I have to make time. No. Time is given to you. You have to reallocate your time from other shit to this. That's what, anyway. Now, the thing is, um, uh, most people in this room, I, I think, as I know many of the people, will have, will be doing step four it, with a very, very, in a very, very thorough way. Now, if it takes longer because you're doing more work, you're getting more out of it. So you're not slowing yourself down. The journey is the destination. So if you do a step four, which takes 10 hours versus a step four, which takes 100, the one which takes 100 will give you 10 times as much as the one which takes 10 hours. So it doesn't matter if it takes longer, because if you've already surrendered, you're already in God's hands and you're being looked after. So it's fine. This isn't a race to get anywhere. Uh, there is a race against the ego, but that race is won by giving oneself to the process daily, giving time to it daily. How fast you get there, wherever there is, is neither here nor there. People that do a step four very, very thoroughly make a lot of spiritual progress during the process. So they're not going slower because they're doing it more in a more detailed way. Very important, that. Um, I don't worry about how long it takes to get through. What matters is the time that you give it every day. I know people, uh, I sponsor 
quite a few people in in Israel where uh, in some of the communities people get married very young so by the time they're 24 25 they got four children five children and it's tough because they're young they haven't you know I, I didn't know much about how to live at that age and they're trying to juggle four children and two jobs and there's a lot going on uh, in London most people who are 25 are not married have no dependents have no obligations except themselves they might have a job working in a in a in a we work somewhere lots of nice music on in the background on a pool table it's a very very different life so how much time you can give to it just depends on the circumstances in particular who else is depending on you yeah single mothers very very difficult to give it a lot of time every day um people who are primary school teachers in particular sometimes secondary school teachers but i've sponsored a few primary school teachers during term time the step four is not going to get done because it's just not possible with the type of schedule people have sometimes with nursing it's a very you know you've got four days a week when you're on 12 hour shifts uh, just not for those four days all you have to do is not die that's there's nothing else you can do um but a lot of people aren't in that position so you have to adjust the amount of time you give based on the circumstances if you give it the time you'll get through it um uh when you get through it and also people come to this with different degrees of damage um step four is a moral inventory but it also unpicks crooked twisted thinking if your thinking is very very twisted it takes more untwisting it takes longer to start to see the truth uh, and it takes as long as it takes and that's all right it's better to do it right than to do it badly and but quickly and um, very often that i think one of the most dangerous things we do is to get people through the steps too quickly without it going in properly because all that happens is they say they've done the steps they think they've done the steps but it hasn't touched the sides and they just spent a lot of time looking at themselves but they haven't had the spiritual progress hasn't been made because it's been done superficially so i'm a fan of doing it thoroughly and carefully in a context of fellowship and service so that you have support but it's not easy to look at uh michael s thanks for the talk tim um while doing my step four some of my personal relations included things like i wish this person would attend sa or i wish this person would attend SNOM. recognizing that that's selfish thinking but coming from a place of i seriously believe this would help them how can I, if I can at all, recommend they go into essay or essay? Okay, there's a lot in that question. Uh, I mean, the, the 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 first observation, the first observation I'd make is, yes, of course, one wants people to do well, but if one is more concerned about a close friend getting into essay than random people in Mozambique and Bolivia. Who are sex addicts getting into essay this is not about concern for others if it was purely about concern for others it would be universal to all for all people in that position so there's often a mixed motive there um with getting other people into recovery it's hard enough getting people who say they're willing to do the steps to actually do the step work 
like people will be so super excited in step three say i really really want to do my step four then they disappear so the people who are who say they're super willing have huge trouble doing what they agreed they would do after an incredibly careful consideration so i don't the idea of getting someone outside into recovery outside recovery into recovery i i don't bother anymore because all i have to do is be an example and they get to know that i'm in aa or in alanon and if i'm just less of a jerk than i used to be that's about as good an advert as i can hope for but people can't be persuaded i don't i've never persuaded anyone i've never it's it's attraction but it's Alcoholics Anonymous, not um, Alcoholics Invisible. So uh, people have got to know that I'm in AA to be attracted, but I don't, I don't push it on anyone because it doesn't, in my experience, work. There may be more skilled advocates for it out there, but I'm not one. Uh, Texas. There we go. Howdy, hey everybody. I'm Texas T. I'm an alcoholic. Great to see you, Tim. Uh, I'm I'm so glad Adam's been telling me to come come to these. Uh, we we had Tim speaking in Berlin at one of our conventions, and I've just adored you ever since. And let me tell you something. I'm a pretty hardcore sponsor. I'm not a sugar coder, but you're up in my ante, and and I want to thank you because because. Uh, your directness saves people's lives. It's when people are not as specific that um, I don't, I feel like I'm not doing my service to them because I'm letting them live in their alcoholism. So I love your directness. And, and there's one thing I wanted to point out uh, that that um, I usually do as a sponsor, but you know I'm not trying. This is Tim's workshop, not the Texas Tea workshop. Because I, I love that, you know, when I finally was uh, sober and sane enough to realize about about how the sex inventory is my 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 conduct as a human. It, it has nothing to do with my sex. It's like it, it's like well, for me, sex is like drugs. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to forget about God. I'm going to I'm going to manipulate, self seek, da 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 da. And I always get myself in trouble. You know, there's where the ball starts rolling because I make a decision based on self. I want sex. So then I start acting funny. And and the thing is, I love those questions there because I didn't, you know, I didn't, until I realized, I didn't realize, ah, oh, I act funny when I want sex. I let it become my higher power. Ah. Oh. And, and so, and when it, you know, I love all these questions that they have me ask in the middle of page 69. And one of my favorite questions in, in all areas of AA is what I ask my higher power, because I don't know what I should have done instead. So I asked my higher power to help me see what I, what I could have done instead. What would you have wanted me to do? And then that next paragraph, it tells me that in this way, I try to shape a sane and sound ideal for my future sex life. And, and so I did, I did some writing on that myself. Uh, what, what, uh, but I asked God to help me, uh, what, what would be a, a, a sane and sound ideal 
for my future sex life. And and then, of course, it, it turned into any relationship in my life. So what is saying and sound? And then it, I finally realized it became into what kind of person did I want to become? And and it really opened up my eyes to what kind of person I really wanted to become in all areas of my life. And, and, it, and it was all about that, as you call it, my new system, working with my spiritual uh, thing. So um, I, I don't know how much you ever uh, concentrate on, on uh, bringing that to people's attention about the sane and sound way to be in life. Um, so do you bring that up? Yeah, so th thank you, yeah. Yeah, so I touched on it a little bit about looking at the 69 to 70 as a problem-solving mechanism. But yeah, I specifically, uh, I specifically do get people, as, as it's what I do myself, systematically go through each area of my life and write out a sane and sound ideal for what I think God would have me be, what I think God would have me do. But then I've got something active to work towards as opposed to something negative to work away from. And it's much easier to substitute the right thing than it is to clear up the wrong thing. Kate. Thank you. Hi, I'm Kate. I'm an alcoholic. Tim, thank you so very much. Fantastic workshop. I have a question, which is, do you have any um, advice for sponsees that get lost in the third column? Um, I don't know with the seven areas of self or the seven you know, stimuli or whatever. Is there any advice to really clarify what each area it's asking us to look at thank you yeah but very good question so uh, at this point in the inventory what you're saying is well something has pissed you off and you're saying well what what do i want to have happened what do i wish had happened what would everything look like if i had my own way it talks on 66 about we want our own way and the way you do it is this so the first two areas are personal relations and sex relations. How do I want the person to relate to me? What do I want the person to do? If it's in the domain of sex, it's under sex relations. Everything else is under personal relations. And the way to cut through the crap is to say, literally, what do I want them to do or say? So not, I want Bobby to respect me. It doesn't mean anything. No, I want Bobby to come into my office twice a day and tell me how good my work is. Good, now we have something concrete to work. Um, and then you say, well, if I got my own way, if everyone is now behaving correctly, how would my actual life be better? So let's say, let's, I'm going to give the example, but it's, such a, it's a good one because it covers all areas where a particular agency I work for, uh, that they, they brought in one of their uh, senior people to, to really slam me on a, on a couple of things that I'd done. Uh, and it was actually relatively trivial, but they went in very heavy, sarcastic, patronizing, and it was, it was an unpleasant little, little email that I got. Um, Personal relations was praise me. If I make a mistake, don't bring it up with me. If you do bring it up, bring it up apologetically, play it down and be kind and constructive when doing so. 
So you imagine you're giving them commands for how they should behave. Now, I then ask the very specific question, if they behaved right, according to my idea of right, how would my actual life be better? And I think, well, first of all, the agency would give me more good work. So security, agency gives me good work. Uh, pocketbooks, uh, I earn more money, brackets, pound sign and how much money I think I should be earning from that per year. But make it very concrete. Well, what would that do? It, you play the if, if you, you play the then what game. Well, then what? Well, then I would be secure under security. I would have a secure financial future. Um, ambitions. I want to be a successful, the thing that I do as an occupation, I want to be a successful user. And I want to be perceived as a successful, accomplished, talented, flawless user. Um, uh, Self-esteem. Uh, I want to, uh, uh, and more than that, there might be another ambition. Um, Oh, no, I won't get too complicated with this, you, but you get the idea. It's very, very specific. Exactly how would my actual life be different? And then pride and self-esteem. With pride, I say, how do I want them to, how do I want them to see me? How do I think they see me? So I think this person sees me as, as lazy, negligent, and stupid. I think I want them to see me as smart, accomplished. Uh, professional. And I always write those as three adjectives for each adjective maximum. Or you can use a, a, a descriptive noun like you know, a, a failure or a ne'er-do-well or whatever. But what people write sometimes is, um, uh, I want people, rather than I want people to see me as accomplished, or I want people to see me as professional, they'll write something like, I want people to see me as the sort of person that they don't think they can push around when they think I've done something. No, no, no. We don't want you to tell a whole story here. We want the image of the person. It's the image which is affected here. Same with self-esteem. I see myself as I would like to see myself as. So if you keep it very concrete, personal sex relations, specifically what do I want the person to say or do instead of what they did do? Not just don't do that, but the positive image of what you do want them to do, how you would want them to behave in an ideal world. Uh, if they did that, what would change in the actual, my actual external life, and then my experience of that, slot those under pocketbooks if it's financial, security if it's the meeting of a basic human need, um, and ambitions for everything else, and then pride and self-esteem. Does that answer your question, Kate? Very good. Okay, <laughs> Jay. My question, Tim, this is really helpful, by the way, because I've been in AA and OA many years, but you're helping it become fresh and more applicable. So thank you. And you and Alanon, you were talking about 
where other, where other areas of your life are out of order and how that impacts on your resentment and your perception of other people. How do you, when you're sponsoring someone, get them to think about that in their fourth step? Uh, so good question. So that all comes up. It, it's in the page 67 questions. Once they've written, the, once they've answered those eight questions on all the people they resent, I get them to write a list of areas of their life. Now, I've got a kind of starter pack for those areas. So areas which are common to everyone, like diet and exercise and you know, family, if the family are not on the resentment list. Uh, looking after the home so you start off with the list but other people are gonna people are gonna have areas on there uh which are gonna be unusual so not many people have flamenco dancing but if flamenco dancing is a big part of your life you're going to need to look at how you're operating in that area if you are if you work in the community in some way if you belong to a political party if you have religious observance Basically, whatever you spend your time doing is an area of your life. Whatever part of your life needs maintenance in some way, that is something you need to attend to. So people that have got chronic diseases will have the management of that chronic disease or that long-term injury. So I, I, I'm, I do a lot of sport, and I, so I have to be very, very careful about physical injuries, and I have routines every day to look after that I have that as an area of my life and most people don't because they don't do as much sport as me so it you just have to if if the person can be honest about what areas their life has and ask those questions if they're sincere <laughs> then the answers will come out in due course but people have got to want to find these things you can't make people want to do this. It's, it's, it's hard enough because the thing is, the ego does not want you to look at any of this. And it pulls every single trick in the book to stop you from looking at it. So even with the very willing, people discover, much to their horror, their own resistance to the process and their own unwitting unconscious sabotage of the process so if someone is not entirely willing you absolutely can't force it because even the willing struggle but it's worth you you never get everything on one go it, it takes so you have to go through it the process repeatedly over the years and gradually you get to the back of the cupboard as it were you never clear everything out in, in one go so don't worry about that you can always, if you've got lots of very big things going on, deal with those and you can get to the smaller things later. And, and I found that over the years uh, that I would have two, maybe two years dealing with one thing and then another two years dealing with another thing. There would be a big topic for a year or two. Uh, and then that area will subside for a bit and you'll coast for a few years. Then the area will come back up again. Um, so sometimes at the moment, <laughs> my sponsors may disagree with this. I'm, I'm having a reasonably OK time with sponsees at the moment. It's not too turbulent. I've had times when it's really turbulent on all fronts. So at the moment, it's relatively it's relatively calm um, uh, because the thing is, you're, you're, if you're alive, 
if you re if you're really alive you're growing and if you're growing you're growing into new areas and if you're growing into new areas you're growing into new difficulties and new opportunities for your ego to act out so just because you're having difficulties at 5 10 15 20 25 30 years sober doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong it means you're growing and these are the latest challenges that the higher power is allowing you to face in order that you can become better than you have been uh, any other questions before we go and have our lunch i think that's it so jason is jason still here <laughs>